There's this belief that the grass is always greener on the other side. Just beyond the horizon lies the promised land, paradise, the answer to all our problems. If only we could get there. Few ever make it to the other side, let alone even try. But for a group of Quakers high up in the green mountains of Monteverde, Costa Rica, they may have come pretty close. How they got there is a story in and of itself. Quakers are a pacifist group, and they don't believe in going to war. That's Phyllis Wallace, and she's a Quaker. And so they refused to, to register for the draft, and therefore they went to prison because they weren't, wouldn't comply with the law. And the law she's talking about is the Elson Act, otherwise known as the Selective Service Act of 1948. It required all men between the ages of 18 and 26 to register for military service. Four young men from a town just outside of Mobile called Fairhope refused to register and were arrested. They were Quakers and believed in pacifism. The Second World War was still fresh on everyone's minds and some of the young men had served in various non-combatant roles during the war. But in the years that followed, they noticed the growing militarization of the country and decided they could not participate in good faith. It was the country's second peacetime draft ever mandated, and this time around the government was cracking down on dissenters and handing out prison sentences from a few months to three years. The four young men were brought to federal court, and at the sentencing, Judge Sean McDuffie uttered the famous words that became the impetus for the quest for the greener grass. This is a government of laws and not of men. And so as long as you live here, you should abide by the laws of the land. Those who oppose the laws of this country and this form of government, even when it goes to war, should get out of this country and stay out. And so they did. Good dog. Stay. This is what happens every time when you do that. You trip people up. <laughs> Nobody can do anything or even talk with you. <laughs> Benito Gwinden is the youngest son of Wolf Gwinden, one of the men that was arrested back in Fairhope. Benito follows in his father's footsteps and now runs the farm high up on the mountains that looks down on the Pacific Ocean. Oh my goodness, wow. Do you see the Atlantic? Or the Pacific, Pacific? The view is breathtaking. That's insane. Benito was born in Costa Rica, and the farm he lives on now is all he's ever known. His parents were Wolf and Lucky Gwendon, and were part of the original 30 Quakers that made the move to Monteverde from Fairhope. And so the judge that sentenced them actually said, well, if you don't agree to the laws of this country, you should get out and stay out. And so they, over a period of time, you know, they decided that's what they would do. The group spent a great amount of time planning the move. They had several other places they considered, but Costa Rica had a desirable advantage. They thought of different countries, they thought of Canada, but Costa Rica, one of the pluses was that they had abolished their army. Like I said, Benito was born here. Costa Rica is his homeland. But I was curious to hear from those that made the move. I was about uh, not quite seven years old when, when our, our family moved to Costa Rica. Floyd Rockwell was born in Fairhope and was young when his family came to Monteverde. Floyd's uncle, Marvin Rockwell, drove in a convoy of jeeps and trucks that took three months to travel through Central America. 
they sort of explained to you that y'all, y'all were moving? I don't remember what they said if they tried to explain. I guess they, they knew we were aware of what the discussion that had been going on, and I never had a, a clear idea or even thought about what we were going into because I wasn't really, didn't really know. Floyd and his family flew. You ever flown before at that point? No. My brother and I were both pretty sick on the, on the trip. I don't know how much was airsick or anyway and how much was we had a bug, but it was all part of a big experience. They landed in the capital of San Jose and waited as the property in Monteverde was finalized. After a few weeks, they were finally able to go up the mountain. This was it. The grass was greener here, and they had made it to the promised land. Basically, it was dark when we got there, and, but when we got up in the morning, it was, it was so beautiful and lush. All the gray grass was wet, and it, was, it, was, it was, smelled wonderful. Well, I'm Phyllis Rockwell Wallace, and went to... That's Phyllis again. She came a few years after the first group had settled when she was 24. 1956, maybe. Things among the Quakers in Monteverde were going good, and morale was high. The Quakers had established a worship building and were still adjusting to the surroundings. Instead of having to have a tent where they would use these houses, and one of them was used for the first meeting house and for the school. However, nowadays things are much different. As more Quakers came, the community grew, and they built a bigger school for their children. The Quakers then began to grow into their progressive identity. So my name is Rick Juliuson. I'm the co-director of the school here, the Monteverdi Friends School. I'm the barefoot director. Yeah. <laughs> we were founded back in 1951. Well, 51 is when the Quakers moved down here from Alabama mostly, an Iowa yearly meeting, and established this community, bought land, started farming, and then almost right away they opened a school, at first for their own children, of course. Um, but quite soon other local children wanted to join also, so they opened the doors, started welcoming local kids in. Word of this progressive and peaceful lifestyle spread beyond the circle of Quakers, and soon attracted even more people from all over the world. Rand told me this was kind of like the mecca of, of this world. You, <laughs> I'm you just going to use that word. Yeah, people come here on pilgr- well, pilgrimage is a big word, but you know, people come here because they've heard about Monteverdi their whole life and just really have to come and experience it. Both the unique history of it, where a group of 20-year-old you know, newly married young people moved here with no money and established a community that 66 years later is still thriving. And that's huge in itself. And did that based on their principles and beliefs and how they wanted to affect the world and live in the world. And then there's just the natural beauty of this place. The flora and fauna and the park reserves and the wind and the weather. And this is not a Quinton. This is Luke Jimenez. He is showing us around the forest close to his house. He's from the capital city of San Jose and moved out to Monteverde because of the wildlife. I came visiting some friends and then we made a plan to like try to come here and live a little. And then um... Luke is not a Quaker himself, but befriended Benito and now lives upon a hill on his property. We started looking for places, just random. Um, all of a sudden, we, we knew Benito. Benito says, like, I have a house that hasn't been um, with, the, with people in it for, for so long, and maybe we should live there to start moving things around, and you're going to live there for, for, for some time, but uh, maybe you'll stay. And we stay, <laughs> we stay, and we stay. We haven't moved it there, it seems. Can this all really be true, though? 
Does this idyllic notion of the promised land really exist unadulterated? What are the realities of a place deemed paradise? And more interestingly, why would someone ever come back? Turns out, even with the peace-loving Quakers, there can be trouble in paradise. We were completely cut off here. The bridges were washed out. The cell phone connections were down. Hurricane Nate devastated parts of Costa Rica last fall, and Monteverde took a serious beating. We were, became an island up here on the mountain, and some people were really scared. Benito sees himself as the end of the line for those still farming sustainably. Although most of the original founders were dairy farmers and had lots of kids, not many are still farming, and not many even live in Costa Rica still. There seems to be no interest in the next generation in doing farming. So, basically just kind of me, and this is a... I mean, I don't, I don't understand how this works. I mean, the human population is constantly increasing, and the areas, you know, that are... There's more and more areas going and diminishing. So either you have to use technology and fertilizing and stuff to produce a lot more out of your smaller area, or they have to cut new areas Contentions are man-made, and when you put personalities together in small proximity, it only exacerbates the problem. There is a large amount of friction. Eventually, the friction just got to be too much, and my parents decided they needed to come back to the U.S. to work for a while, and that's what caused us to move. Even Luke is not immune. Wow. He lives a life, man. Yeah, he does. He says <laughs> that this is life, but he also said that it gets really lonely. But the Quakers have an answer to this. They have their meeting. It's what they call their worship service. It's a big part of Quakerism and a time they hold sacred. Twice a week, they congregate together in the meeting house along with the students. With this particular branch of Quakerism, there are no pastors or sermon. Inside the meeting house, there are no religious symbols or pictures. And there was just a tiny bookcase in the corner that had one copy of the Bible, a few magazines, and some dusty pamphlets. There's no message at these meetings. For about 45 minutes, they just sit in silence. You begin to hear your internal monologue. They say it's the voice of the God within, in a form of prayer. This is a new concept to me, something I welcomed. It allowed me to reflect, and I began thinking existentially, philosophically, and apologetically. Who am I? What is life? I really do feel sorry for making fun of Tanner King in math class in 11th grade for being really bad at saxophone. I'm sorry. Silence is real core to our practice, not our belief, but our practice. I mean, Quakerism grew in the 1600s where George Fox in England had this revelation that a lot of things are separating me from God. The preacher telling me what to believe and making a lot of noise and all the rituals and symbols, they're, they're not connecting me to the divine, they're separating me. I've got Christ within. I'm just going to sit in silence and listen for the voice of God or Christ or the light or whatever you want to call that force. The stuff weighs heavy, though, and the meeting allows the time to make peace with this. Some meetings are completely silent, not a single person talks. This morning you heard one of our loudest meetings ever <laughs> since I've been here. That was a lot of testimony that happened today. After what seemed like 15 minutes, a girl that looked to be an upperclassman in the high school stood up and began to read a poem. 
She held out a piece of paper and possessed a slightly shy and awkward demeanor that seems to be universal to kids of that age. Yet she read with conviction. Her poem was addressed to students at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, where a shooter had killed 17 people. And in the poem, it included a few text messages from some of the students at Parkland a few moments before they were killed. The girl finished her poem and sat down. Another girl stood up and read the exact same poem, but in Spanish. A few moments later, an older gentleman seated on another pew across the room stood up and shared a testimony, and then he said his testimony again in Spanish. Then another person. Then another person. Each testimony said in both languages for everyone to hear. I had visited the Quaker community on March 14th when thousands of students from across the world walked out of school protesting gun violence and calling for peace. In such a small and quiet room, you can feel the change of presence. It's like a ripple on a still pond that begins at a point and radiates out, touching everything. just struck a chord with people and suddenly they were feeling and needing to share particularly one traumatic event that happened here in Monteverde. Costa Rica's most violent event happened in Monteverde 14 years ago when a bank robbery had gone bad and nine people ended up dead in a shootout. That ripple intensified when multiple stories were shared about the event in Monteverde that still felt recent. It was shared that the youngest survivor of that robbery was here in the meeting and in the womb of a woman held hostage at the bank. Of the 120 students in the meeting, I tried to pick out the freshmen and see which might have been that particular person, but they all had the same look. They were ready to get out of the meeting. They were antsy, but not to leave. They were headed outside to the basketball court out back to participate in their own version of the March for Our Lives. This all feels too similar to the exact same reasons those four, essentially boys, left Fairhope 67 years ago. Faced with hardships of many kinds, they sought for peace, and some may still be looking. Yet it seems they have found their version of paradise by proxy. Most of the original founders stayed in Monteverde, while others left to return back home. In a way, I feel sorry for myself that I'm not still a part of the group. After nearly 20 years, Phyllis remarried and returned back to the U.S. She now lives in a retirement community in Fairhope and still attends meetings. But there is still a longing. That was my ideal of, uh, and it is a beautiful place, and it's not, and it's one that uh, can sustain people. Floyd and his family eventually moved away from Monteverde down to San Jose, then to Ohio, and then back to Fairhope. I feel very fortunate that I was able to grow up there. I guess it's like any, any place where you've lived, it's never the same place when you go back. Yeah, I like Fairhope. It's, it's a nice place. It's a wonderful place to live. If you could go somewhere else, where, where would be your sort of promised land now? What other places? Oh, I don't know. I have no idea. I guess my ancestors and family have always been wanderers. So this idea of like sort of the, the promised land or the idea of the cool place beyond... It's not necessarily where you are now or this other place. It's just kind of yeah, the idea. Yeah, always of looking around. for the greener grass. Huh. <laughs> or I guess in Monteverde you found your green mountain, I guess. It was certainly green. <laughs> but I think Luke says it best. While we were wandering around the cloud forest near the Continental Divide, we came upon a massive, massive tree. 
It stood over the canopy well over 100 feet tall and 15 feet wide. It was made of maybe a dozen smaller vines wrapped around the trunk and blocked out all the other trees below, creating a kind of open room in the forest. A beautiful place. From my short time spent with Luke, I've learned he's a pretty happy-go-lucky guy. But as we approached the tree, I saw his demeanor change to reverence. This, this was Luke's place. When you're angry, you just come and talk to him. He will make your day. <laughs> Sometimes I just start walking where there's no path. Just go in there, let's see where it takes you. And try to go back. Have you ever gotten, have you ever gotten lost? Yes. Do you like getting lost? Yeah, yes and no. There's a um, urgency, a feeling when you're lost, and the place starts starts to do its own thing on you, like it plays tricks on you, and, and it's all on you. It's you playing tricks on yourself. <laughs> wow, yeah. But there's also like a pretty, man, I'm lost. Let's take some time for this, right? Like, I'm, I don't know. It's, it's like a mystic 